World Rare Disease Day, held on the last day of February each year, is an annual observance to raise awareness for the 400 million people affected by rare disease globally. World Rare Disease Day 2021 falls on February 28th this year. Visit globalgenes.org forward slash world hyphen rare hyphen disease hyphen day for more information on how you can help elevate the cause and shine a light on rare disease patients and caregivers around the world. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Glioblastoma is an aggressive and rare brain cancer. Though it typically is treated with surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, the prognosis for patients is grim, with only about 10% surviving at least five years. Plus Therapeutics is developing a pipeline of radiotherapies that are encapsulated in nanoliposomes. Through novel delivery and formulation of these therapies, the company believes it can produce safer and more efficacious treatments. We spoke to Mark Hedrick, CEO of Plus Therapeutics, about the company's nanoliposome technology, how it works, and why the company is focusing on rare cancers. Mark, thanks for joining us. No, thank you, Danny. Appreciate it. We're going to talk about Plus Therapeutics, rare cancers, and how Plus is using novel delivery technology and formulations to take existing therapies and treat rare cancers with unmet needs. Let's start with glioblastoma. What is glioblastoma? Well, unfortunately, Danny, glioblastoma is a death sentence. And it's one of those diseases that although it's rare, most people know somebody that's had it or have some interaction with somebody at work or something that's ultimately had it. So most people are familiar with it. It's a cancer that starts in the brain It's a primary brain tumor, generally doesn't spread outside the body. It tends to stay in the brain where it originates, but it's incredibly hard to eradicate. Um, The surgery uh, for that usually means removal of the tumor, and that's sort of the mainstay of of the treatment, but it almost always comes back. It affects about 13,000 patients in the U.S. every year, and things are available, including surgery, radiation, and certain chemotherapy drugs can prolong life, but you really can't cure it. And uh, it always comes back. And it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult problem that is perhaps one of, if not the, the most important unmet medical need in rare cancers. How does the condition manifest itself and progress? So it, it can start with a variety of symptoms. Uh, they're the things you might imagine if one were to have a brain tumor where you might have a seizure, uh, you might have an excruciating headache, you can have bleeding into the brain, um, you can have focal weakness in one part of your body at one limb, one leg, uh, one area of your face, um, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and then generally, 
those those somebody has those symptoms those are all pretty pretty serious things they go to the emergency room and uh, uh, an ER doctor or their primary doctor will do a some sort of cat scan or MRI of their head and and it's very obvious once you do the um, the radiological imaging I suspect one of the reasons it's a rare cancer is because survival is is not very good what's the prognosis for someone with the condition and what treatment options are available today? Yeah, so um, essentially everyone that gets it dies. There are the the odd case where surgery is successful and they're able to to eradicate the in, entirety of the tumor. But essentially, once it occurs, it it almost always reoccurs. And then once it reoccurs, uh, the um, uh, the survival for those patients is somewhere between six to 10 months. Uh, that's now there occasionally there are long-term survivors, but that's sort of the average survival. So it's just does not have a good prognosis. Uh, even if it's caught early, it's very difficult to, to cure. Plus is working on an experimental therapy for recurring glioblastoma using rhenium nanoliposomes. What are rhenium nanoliposomes? Yeah, so um, yeah, I'll kind of tie that back to the your your prior question, which is what you know what's in the arsenal uh, therapeutically for for these patients. So surgery, I mentioned radiation, chemotherapy, uh, drugs that target the blood vessels. Those are things that are used depending on certain individual factors that uh, based on the patient's presentation. So kind of bridging that to uh, plus therapeutics, uh, a first of its kind drug called rhenium nanoliposomes that you mentioned. Radiation actually is the best treatment for glioblastoma. Uh, radiation is sort of a mainstay of the overall treatment portfolio. The problem with radiation is you can only give a very limited amount. It's, it's radiation that goes from the outside in. So you have a you have sort of a, a gun that shoots the radiation out into um, in, in through the skull and into the brain. And generally that's given over uh, a month or six weeks in very small amounts to minimize the, the downsides of the radiation. Well, radium nanoliposomes is a way to give the radiation inside out. And we can give perhaps up to 20 times or more the amount of radiation that you can get with traditional external beam irradiation. So you're taking really the best current treatment for, for glioblastoma, which is external beam irradiation therapy. You're multiplying it by 20 times and you're giving it directly into the tumor and only the tumor. That's the difference. And, and how are you able to do that? Is it, is it allowed for a more targeted delivery of the radiation? Yeah, so there's there's kind of two answers to that question. I, the, the the first the first question first part of that question is the drug itself, and the drug is a really unique uh, unique drug. Uh, as I mentioned, it's kind of first of its kind uh, in terms of uh, the drug development in the world, where you actually take a rhenium, which is it's on your remember the the periodic table uh, in your old chemistry books. If you took chemistry. Iridium's down way at the bottom to the right, and it's, it's a really big atom. And when you put that into 
uh, a nuclear reactor, just the kind of nuclear reactor that you, you know, makes your power. Um, that radium becomes an isotope. It's a very big isotopic uh, molecule. And then what we've done is figured out a way to, to grapple that radium atom and put it into a lipid envelope, put thousands of those into a lipid envelope and then deliver that envelope directly into the, to the brain. So that's sort of part one, that's the drug and that's the novelty that plus therapeutic brings. But the, there's, a, there's a part two of that and that is just because you have the drug doesn't necessarily mean you can get it into the brain. And so there's a whole slew of relatively recent developments in neurosurgery and imaging in preoperative surgical planning where this, in this case, the surgery is planned using very unique software that allows you to, to define just how to place the tumor in the exact appropriate way into the brain in three dimensions, and then to push the drug uh, with a head of pressure to deliver it directly into, into the brain. So it's a lot of those, uh, those sort of ancillary uh, inventions in the IT space and in the, the medical technology space married to our drug, which really allow us to to sort of innovate the treatment of brain cancer here in this way. And, and does the lipid hold the dose in place? Exactly. So if you just take the rhenium and without the, the, the chelation technology and without the, the, the liposome, which is the lipid envelope, then you put it into the brain, it just goes away. The brain uh, pulls it out of the brain, goes to the lymphatics and it, and it gets, uh, goes out through the kidneys. It sticks around just for a few hours and it's gone. If you put it in a lipid envelope, it can stay for two, three, four weeks even. You can still see radiation in the brain uh, two to four weeks after it's delivered. And practically what, what that means is that rhenium is just pounding away uh, with radiation at, in, the, uh, in the brain cancer over you know minute after minute uh, hour after hour, day after day. And it just ensures that you get the maximum possible dose to the, to the tumor that you can get without a complication. This is an alternative to external beam radiation. It, it's personalized to each patient and it's considered a, a one-time surgical procedure. What's the process for the patient and, and how is it personalized? Yeah, so yeah, I think the, the best comparator is external beam radiation. However, um, because it does essentially uh, make a hole in the brain where the tumor was, which is frankly what surgery does, it's sort of similar to surgery. It removes the tumor from the brain. So it may not only, you know, the, the best comparator may not only be external beam radiation, it may be surgery or even the drugs that are used to hopefully kill the tumor. So it really is something that could supplant all of the above as it relates to uh, killing, killing the tumor. So the way it works for the patient is a patient um, when, and, and we're, we're really developing it at, at present time just for recurrent tumors. Doesn't mean it won't be useful potentially one day for the primary tumors when they're first diagnosed, but just for the recurrent setting, once the patient's diagnosed, they have, you can see that the, the tumor recurrence on a scan that scan is loaded into uh, proprietary software and it helps us develop the surgical plan. And then once that surgical plan with the software and the doctor are developed on the computer before surgery, patient gets admitted 
all of that information gets loaded into the computer in the operating room. And then using what's called stereotactic three-dimensional surgery, uh, at least one and up to four small needles are placed into the brain based on what the, the planning uh, dictates. And then those are, those are secured so they don't come out for about 24 hours. And then the next day, the patient goes down into the nuclear medicines suite in the hospital and a scanner's put uh, nearby them. And then the drug is infused and that takes a few hours. Uh, we, we actually watch it as it goes in so we know exactly where it's going. We could, uh, the rhenium allows us to do that. And then once the infusion is done, the, the needles are pulled out and the patient's watched for a few hours or overnight and then goes home and that's the procedure. So rather than have four to six weeks of going back to the hospital every day, every day, every day, getting you know, little tiny dribs and drabs of radiation, we're doing 20 times what they can get in six weeks of radiation and doing in one procedure. What's known about the safety and efficacy of it to date? So, well, before we, before we started treating patients in a clinical trial, we're, the trial's called RESPECT. It's the name of the trial. It's funded here in the U.S. by the NIH and specifically the Natu National Cancer Institutes. We didn't know if it was going to be safe in people, but we knew that no matter how high we turned up the dose in our animal studies that we, we always do before we go into patients, that we never got to a toxic dose. So we were going up, you know, multiple times what you could get with external beam radiation. And the, the animals were having no negative events related to the radiation. So we're now, we've treated 18 patients now uh, here in the US. Uh, we are now up to about, uh, I think the most recent patient had what's called 600 gray. Gray is how you measure radiation. 600 gray of radiation, as opposed to normally they get about 35 gray. And thus far, we've seen no serious adverse events related to the treatment. So it appears to, at least at the current dosages we're giving, which are extremely high doses, by the way, it appears to be safe. And what's the clinical development path forward? So, um, so our agreement with the National Cancer Institutes is that they've they and the NIH and the um, the NIH have approved us to do up to 55 patients, and the purpose of this trial is to show that it's feasible that we can deliver it and do that, uh, you know, readily and reproducibly in patients, which I think we've done well, very well so far. We need to show that it's safe, which we're we're continuing to study that, but so far it looks to be very safe. And then we're trying to find what's the appropriate way to dose this. How much do you deliver, and in what amount, and through how many catheters and, and so forth. And we're getting pretty close to thinking we've got a good, solid, what we call a phase two dose. And then once we, do, once we decide that, then we'll do the second part of the NIH NCI study and, and do some additional work to confirm that phase two dosing. And that's sort of kind of where we are here in 2021. So hopefully, you know, by towards the end of the year, we may be ready to take this into a definitive trial, which will study to see whether it can potentially be approved or not here in the U.S. and then and then we'll go outside the border to other countries. You have a, a second experimental therapy in clinical development. This is for small cell lung cancer. What is small cell lung cancer? How is it treated today? And what's the prognosis for patients? Yeah, so um, you're right. So we the, the company has four 
drugs in development. Three are actually in patients. And one of those is RNL, which I mentioned, and we're using that for primarily for brain cancer, but we're also looking at pediatric uh, brain cancers and something called leptomeningeal cancer with our RNL drug. We have a, another drug called uh, Dosi Plus, which is a liposomal version of a, of a very well-known successful drug called docetaxel. And that has been used in solid tumors. It appears to work better than docetaxel alone in this particular formulation. And we have orphan designation and uh, status for that for, uh, for treating small cell lung cancer, which is one of the two major kinds of lung cancer. It occurs in about 15 to 20, per, up to 30% of patients actually that, that have lung cancer and has very poor prognosis compared to the other type. And so new treatments are needed for, for those kinds of cancers as well. Now, what is DoxaPlus? Uh, DoxaPlus is actually, a, it's a generic drug. So it's a liposomal form of another drug called doxorubicin, uh, which is very effective for brain cancer, for, excuse me, for breast cancer, for multiple myeloma, uh, for Kaposi's sarcoma and other cancers. So uh, it's a drug that, that our company developed. It's, it's similar to a drug developed by Johnson & Johnson and it's uh, completed its clinical work in Europe. And it's a drug that we're looking to find a partner for to, uh, to get it approved ultimately in Europe for patients who have several different kinds of cancer. And, and how does this work? It's, it, it works similar to other chemotherapies and frankly, radiation. They all sort of work the same way ultimately and they, they block the, the DNA cycle so that the cells can't replicate and then they, they die. And, and so uh, doxorubicin is the main ingredient, doxoplus, and it blocks that, uh, that mitosis. And I'm thinking more in terms of encasing it in the liposome. Yeah, so, um, that. so, so doxoplus and doxoplus are liposomal chemotherapeutics. And the, the problem with, uh, with DoxoPlus is it's extremely toxic, particularly to the cardiovascular system, and that limits how much you can give to a patient. But if you put it in a lipid envelope, it circulates and gives off the, the, the actual main drug, dox, doxorubicin, in a slower fashion, and it minimizes the cardiovascular effects. That's the benefit of putting it in a lipid envelope. For, for DosaPlus, it's a little bit different. The problem is that drug is very difficult to dissolve it into the bloodstream. And so if you could put it, dissolve it in a lipid envelope, then it tends to stick around in the bloodstream in much higher concentrations and it delivers it out over time. So you're using the lipid envelope differently, same lipid envelope in a sense, but it overcomes some of the inherent shortcomings of those the two drugs that are loaded inside of the liposome. Dose of, uh, doxorubicin and docetaxel. And I apologize because I think I confused you by switching dosa and doxa. <laughs> I think no, that's... no worries. They're they're we probably should have named those better. They're a little bit confusing, but I think you I think you get the point. Well, what do you know about dosa from the studies that have been done to date? Well, the the. Uh, I alluded to it earlier, but more specifically, the, the pharmacokinetics, how the drug is processed once it's injected into the body appears to be better than, than uh, docetaxel alone. Um, you can give more of it 
uh, with a greater safety profile. Uh, and in theory, doing that uh, could make it work better in an efficacy study, ultimately. Those studies haven't been done, really just been safety studies uh, thus far. Furthermore, uh, the way that docetaxel is delivered, you can cause some uh, pretty significant inflammatory reactions. So they're given with something called a premedication, uh, the steroid, for example. And so we think we can avoid those in this formulation. So just a formulation that may be ultimately better for the patient in terms of the safety profile and the delivery pro profile of pharmacokinetics. Given that the underlying therapies you're working with are well understood and characterized, are there accelerated development pathways to what you're doing or, or does the novelty of the delivery mechanism require traditional clinical development pathways? So we, we've, uh, we've, we're concentrating our efforts, not limiting our efforts, but concentrating our efforts on, on rare cancers, primarily, um, and particular cancers in the, uh, the CNS. And, uh, and so by, by targeting those, there are certain, uh, certain uh, pathways that are provided pr primarily by the FDA, but other regulators around the, the world as well that allow you to, um, to expedite your review process and maybe your clinical trial approach for those. For example, in something that's very rare, I'm sure you know this, but maybe the listeners don't, that you have a drug that's very rare, maybe um, 100 or 200 patients in the US, the kind of old school clinical trial approach just don't, won't work because there's just not enough patients to do a formal clinical trial. And you may have several drugs that are being developed for that group of patients. So there's just not enough patients to really study them well. So the FDA looks, they're very good about looking uh, at, the, at the big picture, looking at things holistically and helping um, companies uh, develop things and expedite things for patients who really don't have good alternatives. And, and for essentially everything that we're developing, uh, that's the case. Is the expectation though that the same approach would work in more common cancers? And, and if so, are you looking to license the technology for that use? So for, for the RNL drug, um, that really is a first-in-class novel drug that we, we're really starting off looking at CNS cancers. And I mentioned three of those, uh, recurrent glioblastoma, pediatric high-grade glioblastoma, and something called leptomeningeal carcinomatosis or leptomeningeal metastases. I could explain that a little bit if you'd like, but, um, but we're looking specifically at those cancers, but th this drug in theory could be used for other cancers where you can, any, any tumor essentially that you can get a needle into that is sensitive to radiation uh, or sensitive radiation and chemotherapy, we could use the RNL approach. And in fact, we are developing a spinoff of the RNL drug that includes not only radiation, but a traditional chemotherapeutic along with it. So you can actually inject the radiation and the chemotherapeutic, and those tend to work synergistically in many cases. So you can you can target those. So those are those go beyond the CNS to things like prostate cancer or uh, liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, uh, or sarcomas or other types of cancers that you know maybe there's still you know need for for better treatments. Mark Hedrick, President and CEO of Plus Therapeutics. Mark, thanks so much for your time today. Hey, Danny, thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. 
For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.